Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all. Bismillah. All thanks and praise is due to Allah. We seek Allah's help and forgiveness. Whoever God guides will never be led astray. And whoever God allows to go astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God, alone without any partners. And I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and God's messenger. O oh, you who believe, be mindful of God as his gods do, and make sure you devote yourself to God to your dying moment. Quran, Surah 3, Ayat 102. So thank you, Hasna and Samia, for asking me to speak today. Um, as I start, I want to say that I'm not speaking on behalf of the Women's Mosque, and all the opinions expressed today are my own. The title of this kutbah is, what just happened? Um, our lives, as all of us know, are not the same as they were just a few months ago. In March, literally a few months ago, which to me and a lot of you probably seems like years ago. Each of us can list the numerous challenges that we're facing, both personally and in our world right now. I think it's important to acknowledge a list. It's not just one challenge we're facing, but multiple challenges at the same time. So making a list helps us to see how much we're really dealing with. And I've written down a list because to me, it's very powerful to see something in writing. And you know, these challenges are totally unprecedented. So I think it helps us to understand where we are so we know where we need to go. It also helps to understand that, that we have some resilience here. We can acknowledge that. We can pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, look at all this that I'm dealing with now. So let's not be so hard on ourselves and feel so overwhelmed. So my list of challenges, when I started writing it down, had more than a dozen items, more than a dozen but I've condensed it down to just three. And I'm sure some of you will share the same. All of us will share the same in different, in different ways. So number one on the list, my list of course, is the COVID. Our, our, our health is being challenged. The most precious thing we have in terms of our existence is our health. And now we're challenged with that. And literally, as you know, our lives are at stake, the virus, has altered how we do things. It's out, our, altered our ability to move around, to see one another. I'm missing all of you who attend the Women's Mosque. I miss, their, miss your hugs. I miss your faces. I miss us being together. And COVID is, has taken that away from us. And, you know, think of all the things that we've missed. We've missed graduations and family gatherings and funerals and all those things. So that takes a toll. And over and above all that, it's a virus that could kill us. So that's number one. Number two on my list is politics. We've just experienced the most divisive political campaign in recent memory. There's never been an election that I can remember where the majority of Americans perceive that if one or the other presidential candidate wins, their lives would be dramatically affected more Americans than ever voted this last election. So that tells you people are really, really 
engaged in this issue. So there's all kinds of things that, that are on people's minds. I'm sure it's not just one issue, but COVID is one, access to healthcare, access to housing and homelessness, jobs, you know, financial well-being. For many of us, immigration is an issue because we have family members who are outside the country who can't visit us now and vice versa. Uh, we have the whole issue this summer of racial equity and, and how we're gonna deal with that. People fearing that they, their lives are at risk because of racial equity issues, that if they leave their homes, they could be killed by the police or killed by fellow citizens who see them as a threat. And then on the other hand, we've got people who really feel that the protesting in the streets that we saw is gonna result in just crumbling of our societies, that general lawlessness, their businesses are gonna be destroyed, taxes are gonna go up. So there's all these anxieties. And then there's the existential threat of climate change. We're experiencing major weather catastrophes all over. So, you know, the list goes on and on. And our political leadership affects so much of these issues. So like COVID, we're all feeling that, you know, our well-being is at stake. So that brings me to item three on my list. And item three is all the things that we're not dealing with because we're dealing with number one and number two. So this includes our own physical health, our mental health, emotional health, all the things that bring us joy and happiness that we're not able to do because we're always, we're feeling that we're in a state. So I'm going to take a deep breath because all that just is, is overwhelming and it's overwhelming to me. So doing all the things that bring us peace and calm, bring us joy and happiness, those things we haven't been doing because we're, we're feeling we're always in this constant crisis. So number one, number two, number three. So all of that, it's a lot. So let me just take a pause for myself, take a deep breath, um, and then I'll go on to what, what's next, okay? So what's next is what's our response to these circumstances? What can we do? What does our faith counsel us on how to handle these circumstances? How can we respond? And of course, Quran is, is ever ready to, to give us guidance. And it's there, we know what it is. We just have to be reminded. The Quran counsels us to have patience, patience in the face of adversity. And it also counsels us to persevere in the face of adversity. Surah, uh, Surah 94 in Shura, Ayats five through eight, verily with difficulty comes ease. Verily with difficulty it comes ease. And when you find relief, still strive hard so that you may please your, your Lord. Strive hard so you may please your Lord at the end of your difficulty. Okay, or in the midst of your difficulty even. So let me shift to a personal example. I confess, I'm a political news consumer. I'm a junkie, okay? I spend many, many hours every day. You, you would be shocked how many hours I spend. I would be shocked. I, I don't even want to tell you how much time I spend following news on my phone, 
you know, online, I'm reading newspapers online, I'm listening to the radio, I'm listening to way, way, way too much television. And I also expended a lot of energy during this last political campaign. I did phone banking, I sent emails and texts to people I knew, I contributed money to candidates, like I'm sure many of you did. And I supported these, these I did these things because I felt that I was trying to express my values. So I did all this work, but ultimately as a believer, I and all of us need to understand we can have really good intentions. My intention was to uphold my, express my values. And I acted on those intentions. But at the end of the day, Allah is all knowing. And Allah controls outcomes. We don't control outcomes. No, how to, no matter how badly we want something, and I really wanted this badly, um, no matter how we feel, we have to understand our knowledge is limited. And even though we think we know what is best, it's out of our hands, right? So I can say I personally am very happy with the outcome of the presidential election, but it could easily have gone the other way. So as I celebrate the results of the election, I understand that there are more than 70 million voters out there who felt the same way on the other side. So even though I may be celebrating the victory of the candidates I supported, I've got to deal with the fact that there are those on the other side who think now that this has happened, our nation is going to descend into chaos, socialism, communism, or worse, everything is going to go the wrong way. So those voters feel that I on the other side, in some cases, they feel I'm an enemy. Some believe that I'm evil because of the way I voted. So the question I have to ask myself in this situation, what would Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, do in these circumstances? What guidance can I take from his life? So I'll share this one, one story that all of you know. When Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, returned triumphantly to Mecca after the Quraysh were defeated, he entered Mecca, not as a conqueror, but as someone who was returning to his hometown, to Mecca. He was not conquering a foreign nation. And we remember, this was very difficult. I, most of us would not have been able to have that frame of mind. Remember when he left, when he had to leave Mecca, he was fleeing for his life. The Quraysh had attempted to kill him. The story goes, as you know, all know, that the, his cousin Ali was in the prophet's bed pretending to be the prophet to, to throw the assassins off his track so he could escape. So you imagine, I mean, this is in the back of his mind, but despite this, and all those that he had lost that had been killed in the battles with the Quraysh, including some of his closest companions, the prophet returned to Mecca with a generous heart. He did not seek revenge. He did not consider the Quraysh his enemy, although they had acted that way towards him, and he did not consider them the other. Instead, he found ways to reintegrate them into a different kind of society, a healthier society that was striving for social justice and equality for everybody, those who had been conquered and the conquerors, so to speak. So I take that example because I, 
I think no matter how we voted, the people who voted for the other team, the other party, the other candidates, are not the enemy, okay? Though it may seem difficult now, we've got to find a way to live together. We've, we've got to find a way to cultivate a generous heart. And that may seem very difficult right now. And it's probably very difficult because, you know, what, they, we've got two polar sides here. We've got people who are celebrating a great victory and those who are grieving a loss. But we have to understand our political opponents are not going to go away. This is their hometown too, right? So we got to reconcile, we've got to find common ground. And in the second part of the chutzpah, I will give you some strategies on ways I think we might be able to do that. So I say what I have said, may Allah forgive us all, let us all pray for forgiveness. Alhamdulillah, all praise and thanks are due to Allah. So I mentioned, in the first part of the khutbah, that a large number of our fellow citizens voted for leadership that's different than what we voted for, right? The nation's polarized. I read a statistics that more than half of women voted for the current president. 55% of white women and 57% of all women voted for the current president. So clearly we have a long way to go before we have a, consens a, consen a consensus rather on what we value as a country. Even in our state here in California that went overwhelmingly for one presidential candidate, there are still millions of people here, our fellow citizens who don't agree with us. So I believe, as I quoted in the Surah 94, that striving hard to please our Lord is part of the work that we're called to do as Muslims. That we are, this work is about healing this polarization. And I believe that as Muslims, we have a role to play. And that takes some courage. So that means we've got to reach out to others. We've got to reach out to people and have an open conversation. And I, I believe that it's just really, initially it's just about a conversation. It's not a debate. It's not trying to change somebody's mind. It's just talking. That we've we found that we're not doing that anymore. And I think that's the first step. Dr. Mayor Hatouth, who was an, a leader in promoting the idea of a Muslim American identity, he was very active in interfaith efforts. And he left us with some good advice that I recall often in dealing with this issue. He said, meet people where they are not where you want them to be. And that's really good advice. And I'll, I'll give you an example in my own personal life. So I recently moved to a new neighborhood in a very upscale, predominantly white community. Okay, I'm African-American, I'm Muslim, you know, I'm woman, whatever, right? So, and all these neighbors that I saw on the block that I could see were white. The neighbor next door was a white man in his 80s. And I knew that I needed to let the neighbors know that I was not a threat to them. And I made some assumptions, granted, I made some assumptions that may not be correct. I'm sure they were, might have, I'm assuming that they were making assumptions about me, but I made assumptions about them. 
And so I, I decided I needed to reach out. I needed to have a conversation. So I went next door and I introduced myself to this neighbor, the elderly white man. And I asked him how long he'd lived in the neighborhood and just kind of general small talk, talked about his yard and how beautiful his azaleas were. And I told him at the end of the conversation, I said, well, you know, I'm, um, our family is African-American and we're Muslim. And I did that so that if he saw Muslim sisters coming into my house in headscarves, or we saw black people coming over, he would know that it was okay. That these people were my friends. They're not coming over there to rob me. They're not coming over there to instill, you know, incite terrorism or anything like that. And I was pretty sure that he would tell his neighbors. And he did. So that wasn't so bad. All was well, no problems. So I just share that with you um, to, to, as an example of, of how we, can, we need to reach out. But I'm going to come back to that in a minute because there's another encounter I want to share with you that's a little different type. So I have also been in a situation that many of you have been in where, you know, I was, I was on guard, you know, I was, I was on guard with this person next door and I had made some assumptions. He had made some assumptions about, I assumed he made something, but my assumptions that I made were because I'm, I'm under the, I'm, I'm carrying an extra burden that he's not. Okay. It's much more easy for me to be profiled, as they say, than he was. And that's not a fair burden that I have to carry and many of us have to carry. But it's the reality of our life these days. So I had to take the initiative. I had to make that the first step. I was on defense because I didn't know what I was dealing with. And again, that's not right. But I was, it, was, it was a question of me be, being better to be better safe than sorry. Because in my life experience, I've had the police come to my house because neighbors suspected suspicious activity, right? Some of you might have experienced that. So living while black or brown or Muslim is real. And so as I'm talking about opening up dialogue, I also wanna counter that with that other issue that we don't have the luxury of just saying, oh, hi, how you doing, you know? We've got to factor in all these other perceptions that people might have of us. So that's, that's one thing. So, but I, my counsel to everyone is don't give up on that. Don't make assumptions about people, but always understand that this is an extra burden that we're carrying. So the other situation that I wanted to share with you, this is an encounter that I had where I was taking the initiative. I was on defense, right? So what about what happens if you're, you're with a work colleague or a family member, and all of a sudden they're espousing a view that's either racist or, you know, just I'll call it othering someone else. What do you do in that situation? You know, it took me courage to go next door to talk to this neighbor who I didn't know because I didn't know how he was going to react. But what do you do when it's somebody that you know? You know, it takes a lot of courage to, to speak up. First, you're, you're, you're talking... You know, out of the blue, you're talking with somebody, you know, and out of the blue, they make this horrible comment. You know, they say like, all oh, those immigrants should just go back to their home country. And it's just awful, especially those Mexicans, you know, those Mexicans, they're probably all in the Mexican mafia. You know, I've actually heard that. Okay. Or someone says, you know, a really racist joke. 
or a joke about somebody who's disabled, you know? And they're assuming, they're telling you this joke or they're making this comment because they're assuming that you're okay with it. You know, you and I are okay, but those others, you know, those other people, they're not okay, right? Real life experiences, right? Maybe some of you have had them too. So you hear the comment and you first you got to decide, okay, is that what I think I just heard? And then you got to say, okay, if it is, should I respond? How should I respond? Those are difficult situations, right? So every situation is different, but I'll tell you, I got some advice, some very good advice recently from a colleague of mine. And she told me, she said, when she hears something racist or something really, again, I'll call it othering of somebody else from a colleague or a family member. So instead of challenging them or arguing with them about that opinion, she just asked them a question. She says, hmm, why do you think that? Why do you think that? Don't try to argue. Just throw the question back at them. Why do you think that? And it's very disarming, you know, because the person doesn't really know how to respond to that kind of thing. So it just diffuses the situation. Our religion dictates that we speak up against wrong, right? Speak up against wrong. Thinking that all immigrants are horrible, that racism against another group is okay, that violates the Islamic value of recognizing the humanity, the dignity of every other human being. Otherness, othering people, violates human dignity. And as Muslims, it's our obligation to stand up against that. If our political opponents consider us enemies, the other, not human even, that it violates our human dignity. And we can't, we can't allow that to happen. We have to speak up for, in our own behalf and we have to speak up against others who are trying to other other people. We are commanded, as you know, to speak out, to forbid the wrong and enjoin the right. Our prophet, peace be upon him, valued human dignity. In a time of polarization, it takes courage to engage the other side. It takes real courage and not of all, we can't always win. I, I myself, I'm not always courageous enough to say that, to state, to speak out when I know something is wrong, not right. None of us are perfect. I'm, I'm the least of them, to, to, least of anyone to say that I, I always do that because I don't. But we can start and we can strive. Start by having conversations, maybe about the small stuff, the weather, plants, food, whatever. Build a connection, a human connection, so that we are seen as human and the people who are speaking with us are seen as human. And if we hear something that someone that we can't support, we can forbid the wrong. We can say, oh, well, why do you think that? Pretty simple. But on the other hand, how impactful will that be? So finally, as I come to the close of this short message, let me take you back in history for some lessons. In this year of the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote, I am reminded of the battle for suffrage, for the right to vote for women. It took 70 years of organizing to get to 1920. They started in the 1800s. 70 years, okay? It's unimaginable for me today. I mean, I just can't even believe that women would not be given the right to vote. But in that time, there was fierce opposition to suffrage 
And a lot of that opposition was from other women. They didn't have polling back in those days, but I can bet that many women were opposed. I know many women were opposed, maybe a majority, maybe 57%. And women had organized groups to lobby against the right to vote for women. And this is repeated through history. The oppressed are complicit in their own oppression during the civil rights movement. It wasn't the majority of black folks who were out protesting in the streets. The majority of black folks were not in that civil rights movement. It was a handful and they made all the difference, right? And you can probably think of other examples that you know of too. But ultimately, change comes. The vote was secured, the suffragists fought, they sacrificed, they persevered for 70 years, over several generations. We hear the quote frequently, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's attributed to a man named Theodore Parker, but it's most famously quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So in closing, I remind myself and you to fulfill our Islamic values of speaking words directed toward the right. To be kind. It is more important to be kind than quote unquote right. Meaning wanting everyone to think your position is the only right position to have. If we can model this kind of generosity of spirit, we just might be able to help heal the polarization in our country. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, modeled this behavior of being kind, even those to those who opposed him, while he was still being firm and assertive when speaking out against injustice. Kindness, being firm against the wrong. Have good intentions, be active in doing good, have faith in Allah, and do righteous deeds. Wa'amanu wa'amanu salihat which is Quran, Surah 103, Ayat 3. We recite this often in our prayers. Faith and good deeds. So let me close with the duas. Allah advises us in the Quran, good and evil cannot be equal. Respond to evil with something that is better. And then the one who between you and they are in a feud will become like an old friend. And none will attain this except those who are steadfast in patience and none will attain it except the very fortunate, steadfast in patience. Hence, when a temptation from shaitan provokes you, when a temptation from Satan provokes you, seek refuge in God. God is the all-hearing and the all-knowing. Quran, Surah 41, Ayat 34 to 36. So please join me in dua. Ya Allah, we pray for, 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 for relief in these difficult times. We pray for an end to the global pandemic. We pray that you will restore health to those who are sick and that you will comfort those who have lost loved ones to this virus. We pray for the strength to do our part in slowing the spread of the virus and help those who are afflicted. for your pleasure. We pray for a healthy democracy, both here in the United States and around the world. And we pray that the forces of corruption, greed, and authoritarianism are overcome. We pray for the strength to do what we can do in this fight. for your pleasure. We pray for an end to systemic racism. We pray that all those who have suffered and died because of race will not have suffered and died in vain. We pray for healing for their families. And we pray for the strength to do our part to overcome the racism in ourselves and in our societies. Peace be for your pleasure.
God commands justice and doing good and generosity toward relatives. And God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Recite what is revealed to you in the book and stay consistent in prayer. Indeed, prayer restrains the human from lewd and wicked behavior. But the remembrance of God is even greater. And God knows everything you are doing. Surah 29, Ayat 45. Amen. Wa'akami salat. Let us make the prayer.